Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making the world freer, happier, and more prosperous. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Feeney, Cato's Director of Emerging Technology, and Caleb Watney, Fellow for Technology and Innovation at the R Street Institute. Thank you for joining us, Caleb. Thanks for having me, Paul. Now, I want to talk today about facial recognition software and how it could transform both the American economy as well as our relationship to the state. Uh, You two recently attended a meeting here in D.C. um, sponsored by Amazon about their facial recognition program. So maybe we should just start and and we want to be careful about what we say about, you know, what was going on in the meeting. But just how does the software work? Uh, and, and this isn't necessarily unique to Amazon. I think this is a description that applies to lots of different facial recognition systems being you know, created all around the world right now. Yeah, so I think it's good to start with just like a basic description of what facial recognition technology does. Um, basically, it's a way of categorizing and filtering um, and trying to find patterns in faces so that you can, uh, you know, in the same way, I see you, I, I recognize the cluster of, you know, atoms that make up your nose and your eyes and, and your like chin shape. And I can recognize, hey, that's Paul. Uh, you can basically train neural networks to do the same thing. Uh, it's a lot of the same technology that we've uh, used to help recognize, hey, this is a picture of a cat or this is the picture of a dog or this is the picture of a cactus or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so there are lots of companies that are developing uh, these sorts of technologies. Obviously, um, you know, Google Photos is one that a lot of people interact with. You can uh, search your database of photos and, you know, I can look up pictures of myself or, uh, you know, of Matt or whoever. Um, And and that's an easy way of sort of categorizing uh, the world that's all done automatically. Um, But Amazon is somewhat unique in because they have this whole system of Amazon Web Services, which are basically a suite of tools and sort of AI platform uh, that different companies can use to build. They've they've essentially like compartmentalized uh, machine learning in facial recognition as a tool that other people can use to analyze their own databases of photos. Mm -hmm. And examples of that might be uh, mugshots, for example. Uh, But but basically you can – plug whatever you you want into systems like this for for identification purposes. So uh, maybe uh, all of the lawmakers from Iceland or everyone everyone in the English Premier League or whatever data set you want, you can throw into it. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting technology. And it's uh, I I think it's fair to say that uh, it it, uh, appears paradoxically sometimes like eerily accurate and really uh, uh, interesting and innovative. But at the same time, uh, you oftentimes hear of these, I think, sometimes overblown scare stories about how they misidentify people a lot. Uh, and we have to be careful when we say facial recognition. Um, it's, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of different vendors and specific kinds of software. Right, uh, right. And you have to be careful when you um, hear about stories of misidentification or of abuse to be careful about not only uh, who's using it, but also what what was the actual technology that they were using. It's as diverse a system as saying self-driving cars. Well, mm-hmm. is, is your self-driving car, does it use LIDAR or only radar or only cameras? Does it, you know, what, what's the algorithm being used for it? What are the parameters being set? It's a, we're using one phrase to capture a bewildering array of different kinds of technologies. We just call it facial recognition. Yeah, but I think what uh, Caleb highlighted early on is important to keep in mind which is it's at at base a a way to identify human beings right this way of saying well, well this person says that they're paul are they paul 
And that has tons of really cool and interesting applications. Uh, imagining a world, right, where we get rid of those annoying ticket turnstiles at train stations that you could just walk straight onto the train and the cameras capture your face and automatically debit your account, which is linked to whatever system. Uh, maybe, you know, grocery store, uh, the self-checkout now, but that, but with facial recognition, you could probably get rid of actually a lot of that. Uh, and all of that's really cool and exciting, I think. And there are also, you know, home security uh, applications that people are interested in. Uh, but like a lot of technology, I think there's widespread concern about uh, law enforcement use of this stuff, uh, especially given the access to uh, photos and these databases that a lot of law enforcement have. Uh, if you think about it, uh, a lot of adults have driver's licenses or passports or uh, people who visit the country visa applications. And these all involve uh, photos of faces. Uh, the folks at Georgetown did a study a few years ago. So if anything, it's got worse, which yeah, yeah. Uh, pointed out that at least half of American adults are already in some kind of law enforcement facial recognition database. And uh, I think that raises uh, questions that should be answered. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's also useful to, to take a step back and realize that you know most of the time what software is doing, uh, or especially what we call artificial intelligence, is it's just trying to you know reduce transaction costs in human decision making or pattern recognition, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the specific case of facial recognition, it's just uh, reducing the transaction costs of recognizing someone. And that has lots of useful commercial applications and it has lots of potentially scary uh, law enforcement and, and authoritarian connotations as well. Yeah, and I, I, maybe we should start with some of the potential – positive applications before we get – I mean, it, it, there are scary applications. We'll get to some of those uh, things to watch out for. Um, I mean, on a basic level, it's not all that different. It's a, it, it strikes me as a scaling up of what you do. You know, when you go on Facebook and your grandmother uploads a photo of, of you and your siblings and your kids, I don't know, whatever, and it, it knows, it suggests, is this so-and-so? Would you like to tag them? Well, on a very basic level, it's it's looking through photos that you've previously been tagged in by your grandmother and suggesting, well, is this also Paul, you know, right? So it's very basic. It's not nearly as advanced as the kind of facial recognition software that, that Amazon is, is, is giving access to. But on a basic level, it just makes that – it makes it easier, right? Um, it is making it more frictionless for those photos to be properly identified as which member of the family they are. Um, and that's a pretty mundane example, but it's important to remember like this is already technology that we're using even if it's in relatively primitive form. And it's not you – know, it, it, it's going to change. It has the potential to change your, your daily kind of uh, uh, consumer experience in a myriad of ways. But a lot of those ways are – they're going to be less noticeable than you think. Like for example, the, the, the example you gave uh, Matthew about um, – like uh, train tickets or boarding passes. I've the the technology's actually been trialed by some airlines, I believe. Uh, they want to get rid of the boarding pass, so it just scans your face. Are you on the are are you on the list of approved passengers? So it's a completely it's a frictionless experience to get on the plane, or at least more frictionless. So you can board the plane faster. Does this improve your life by some amount? Sure. I mean, you don't have to wait in line as long. So it say, say, shaves some seconds and some friction off of your uh, airport experience. That's a good thing. That's a fine thing. Um, but probably not going to utterly transform. You're not going to be like, oh, my goodness, that just changed my my world in a drastic way. Yes. And I think many people look forward to shorter queues and being able yeah. to get onto trains and planes more easily. Uh, but that's a 
one of only a few applications of the technology. So yeah. that is uh, an airline has a list of people that are supposed to get on the plane yeah. and someone walks up to the gate and says, you know, hey, I'm Paul and here's my corresponding boarding pass or the, the ways to figure that out. But I think what has people concerned in that sort of situation is, well, how long is Homeland Security going to be keeping that data? Right, and right, right. Uh, that's for a specific uh, – instance uh the boarding of a plane right and but facial recognition I, the the scenarios people i think get more freaked out about are uh situations where law enforcement has footage or, or photos of of crowds or whatever outside and they say right. let's just figure out who these people are or let's find paul yeah. uh let's yeah. uh uh this, this this distinction between like targeted search or just uh search for more information about people who are just going about their lives and that i think has some people more concerned because you enjoy a degree of anonymity uh when you're outside uh thanks just to biology so so caleb's absolutely right that throughout our lives we remember people uh whether they're family members friends or colleagues uh and but our brains uh cannot remember the faces of everyone we pass on the street uh and actually that's not usually en- enough you know meeting someone once is tends not to be enough unless they're famous you have to have repeated contact to like it gets i'm notoriously bad at remembering people's names and faces but this is and if you want to know who someone is and they're a stranger even if you're law enforcement you say okay well who are you and you could say well i'm paul and they said well do you have a driver's license or do you have some form of id and um photo id uh, and there, there's uh facial recognitions in a family tree of other technology other kinds of biometrics so fingerprints are a way that people can be identified uh but uh Fortunately, we don't have mandatory uh, fingerprinting. Uh, so unless you volunteer that as part of a background check or you've been uh, arrested, you're probably not in uh, a system like that. So facial recognition really is the um, – the, it has the potential of a totally unconsensual at-distance identification of someone uh, in virtue of data they've revealed to do an ordinary thing like travel um, or drive a car. It, it's, it feels a bit adjacent. I mean this particular question, uh, these – People voluntarily submitting information that then gets used for purposes that, that wasn't their original intent or even affecting. So, uh, but it feels adjacent to the conversation about DNA databases where folks just want to find out who great, great where great grandpappy was from, right? And it ends up being used to solve a cold case murder involving a third cousin. Um or that data being sold to, you know, for uh, medical research by some uh, third-party company, right? Like, right. It, but, but but I think this is a, actually slightly worse, if anything, because uh, knowing your family history is not as necessary to many people as it is to drive. So yeah, even yeah. if you had um, transparency about this, right, if you were, I guess, depending on the jurisdiction, but if you're a 16-year-old and you're going in to get your first driver's license, and even if there's a notice at the DMV that says, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. we share this with the FBI and state and <laughs> local, and you're – I mean, what percentage of people are going to be like, oh, I guess I can't drive, or oh, I, I won't? I mean, there's it, – you're really holding um, – It depends it's not, on whether we, not, we have autonomous vehicles by that point. But. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that that it, that's an unintended net uh, good consequence of driverless cars, I suppose. But I think the – it, it, well, the the yeah. the data sets that we're most concerned about are the the data sets that have nothing to do with uh, criminal justice or national security. Ostensibly, it's just things we go about doing 
uh, whether it's part of our social lives or social media or just to drive, to get permission to do ordinary things. Yeah, I think building a little bit on what Matt mentioned, uh, one of the, the core differences about sort of like facial recognition as opposed to, you know, other forms of biometric is uh, there there is much less uh, – Technologically, you need less consent to be able to just do it, right? Uh, you know, so in order to get your fingerprint in the first place or to get like a part of your, you know, DNA, a saliva sample or whatever, like that usually involves either physical contact with the person or like them voluntarily doing it. But uh, you could hypothetically, you know, imagine a facial recognition system that just monitors the same, uh, you know, commute pathways back and forth over the course of a year and you would have a very good built-up database of like who's coming by without ever needing to like ask for their approval or permission in the first place. And I think part of the reason why people find this concerning is because so many of our sort of social norms around what kind of level of privacy they expect in public are built around the fact that I can't recognize everyone that I've ever met. Um, And so uh, people know what their own capabilities are for facial recognition and uh, they expect everybody else to have like roughly similar capabilities. And over time, that's led to certain, uh, you know, preconceptions about the degree of anonymity uh, you might expect even going out in public. Well, it's I mean, it's it's when folks were concerned when Edward Snowden made the you know the the leaks about government's use of metadata to track people's whereabouts using phone calls right like within so many degrees of separation you can establish where a whole host millions of americans are just based on the pattern of their phone calls um how much th- those concerns are heightened with facial recognition and the amount of images of us that are out there in the, in the public domain though what's interesting is that in the sense of it being easier to get fa- to to get an image of someone's face to, and to put it in the database than say a saliva sample or a fingerprint it, it's that's doubly true given that already we give our face to the federal government on a constant I mean every time you you ever what, I, what percentage of Americans have a driver's license or a government issued photo ID that's that's comparable the overwhelming majority of adult Americans we gave them access to our faces now we didn't at the time I don't think any of us were thinking if we give this to the DMV of of Virginia like they're then going to use this to scan our faces every time we go in front of a, a CCTV I mean, we weren't thinking that at the time, but that data is already there in a government database, just wait, waiting to be used for. Sure. Right. But that, I think, raises the interesting question of given the technology exists, what should we do? And I don't think the answer is um, to put the technology back in the box it came from, because I think we the technology is valuable and it has right. uh, interesting right. applications. And anyone, even before this became um, much more widely known, uh, fiction writers and filmmakers were using facial recognition a lot in plots. And, you know, everyone's seen a spy film where someone's caught on CCTV and the, the head of intelligence leans over a desk in a blue room and said, who is that? And then the computer figures yeah, out who hands, it is. Yeah. Uh, hands, uh, hands. Hands. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that, that, uh, though, at least, I don't think people have an issue with that kind of technology if the database that the technology is searching is, people wanted for violent crimes or people on terror uh, well terror watch lists have their own different issues right uh, of course that civil libertarians um have highlighted but this is why i think you have some people who will say that they're willing to meet the government halfway which is okay well facial recognition for law enforcement's all right if the database is limited to people who have been convicted of violent crimes people who have outstanding warrants for violent crimes uh, but it shouldn't just include everyone in this jurisdiction with a driver's license uh, because um there's a degree of anonymity that I think people are used to. But inevitably, even in a jurisdiction with that kind of policy, there would be 
the first time criminal who shoots up a bank and and robs someone and they would say well if you had allowed us to put the driver's license photos in we'd be able to figure out who it is i think there's another factor here which is like what are people reacting to with these facial recognition so uh, systems one is sort of there's the perceived sense of just is it creepy that i'm being monitored all the time uh that might be some sort of you know intangible harm or something. Um, I think another factor here is what's the level of perceived harm that could come from the use of facial recognition, right? So especially when you're talking about government uses of uh, surveillance, you know, police use of surveillance, uh, they have the power to lock you in jail uh, and take away all of your liberty for a long time. Uh, And so like the level of potential harm there is much, much higher. Um, compared to, you know, my my iPhone that uses facial recognition to unlock, like, there's not really, like, a level of harm that, that can happen there. I mean, maybe they could try to advertise to me in a way that seems creepy. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems like most of the times when we're concerned, it, it's going to be on sort of the government law enforcement side of things. Well, there's, there's a – so, uh, Matthew, you mentioned this earlier, one of these misidentification tests. Uh, the ACLU ran one back in, I don't know, 2018 um, where they – they they put the images of uh, Congress people, uh, and then try to match it against I forget whose uh, mugshot database, someone's mugshot database, and they hit, had all these matches that were false matches, right? Like John Lewis is one of the congressmen that came up. John Lewis didn't commit, uh, you know, a felony burglary or something that they matched him to. So you're getting they got all these false IDs, which in that particular use case is is amusing because it was a you know it was a, it was a bit of a stunt, right? But the problem is, imagine that the same kind of thing happens in a, a sheriff's county in in Yuma, you know, Arizona. Um, they get a false ID, and because the crime that is being alleged, there's being tied to that person's, you know, fault misidentification is, I don't know, possession of a weapon with deadly intent, and they, you know, I don't know, or it's just felony uh, uh, drug distribution. They're they're worried the person has a gun. They send the SWAT team. SWAT team bangs on the door. Something goes wrong, and someone ends up dead. I mean, so and it's I don't know some random civilian. It's not the person intended. That's going to happen when you have this kind of misidentification. Um, it's just a matter of time. So I mean, misidentification uh, can lead to innocent people being killed. And I suppose it's not utterly unique to this. I mean, you know, the problem of, of police militarization and SWAT raids leading to death and injury is a problem that pre-exists facial recognition, but it, it's not going to get better because of it. Well, please. I, so, so I think you, you could conceivably have it get better. I mean, so there is some error rate uh, that humans have in misidentifying people. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a large literature about um, the fact that, you know, doing like a police lineup to try to identify a suspect is really uh, mm-hmm. fallible. You know, people make mistakes all the time and then, you know, the prosecutors end up uh, falsely, uh, you know, prosecuting someone based on on that, you know, uh, inaccurate witness. Um and so it's it's always good to know like well what are we comparing to? Um, the other factor here is that uh, one nice thing about algorithms is you can have very uh, specific technical levels of of specificity that you're trying to match for. Yeah. So in the Amazon case, uh, you know when they found all these uh, false positives, uh, comparing mugshots against a, a database of. Um, American senators, uh, I, I think the threshold they were using was something like an 80% confidence rate, ah, um, yeah. 
which is much lower than Amazon says they recommend. Uh, they recommend, what is it, 95, 99, something like that, uh, which is a much higher confidence threshold. And uh, they reportedly tried to do the same sort of test using that higher confidence rate. And I don't think they had any false uh, rates yeah. or f- false uh, matches against that specific database. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's Some one thing point. you always want to be careful of is you want to match the uh, – Potential level of harm with the application you're using and the the seriousness of uh, the application uh, with like higher thresholds of confidence. Um, and that is one nice thing that you can do with algorithms that you can't do with a human. You can't tell a human, hey, have a 95% confidence threshold that, uh, you know, the person you're identifying is the person you think it is. Is that not how you start conversations when you see people like, yeah, yeah. like 94% sure that your <laughs> name is Matthew? Well, and, and we, we this makes sense in other domains. Like when we approach medical testing. It's the same same thing. When you run a blood test and you're trying to identify a disorder, no doctor worth their salt is going to say the blood test was positive, therefore you have this. It's the blood test is positive, therefore it's likely you have this and we're this percent confident. So we're going to recommend these follow-up treatments and we'll triangulate the results of all of them, right? Like you have to learn to use tools that produce, uh, uh, you know, uh, a partial or, or the results are not black and white. Sure. Well, there has to be a confidence yeah, uh, interval. Uh, yeah. And I mean, your, your scenario about the SWAT raid gone wrong uh, reminds me of, uh, or at least prompts me to think of a couple of policy solutions or that could at least alleviate it. So one is uh, something I've written about before is that when, when police are deploying surveillance technologies or new tech, that they should be transparent about it, that they should have to inform the lo- the public that this is what they're planning to do and for something like this they should probably be transparent and ideally have it open source be like hey here's here's the technology here's the vendor here's our confidence threshold here's how we're using it uh and if we are going to have widespread use of it you can imagine a um, civil libertarian group saying to the police department well if you're using it then could we have a database of all your police officers so that we can identify your cops out in public uh and actually build a system that identifies a cop in public and says how many times they've been disciplined or yeah, what their yeah. track record is or other departments they've been with. Uh, it could be a two-way street. Uh, transparency uh, could be uh, could be utilized here for, for benefit. Uh, and sorry. Yeah, no, up. totally. I, I totally agree with that. And, and building on that, um, sort of in an adjacent domain, I've written a little bit in the past about uh, the use of, say, risk assessment algorithms being used in the criminal justice system. Uh, and one of the, the things I've come to recommend there is, yeah, sort of open sourcing it, making it open and transparent. Um, most of the time, uh, you, you would want to avoid transparency when there's some risk of like uh, gaming the algorithm in some mm-hmm. way. So you probably don't want the algorithms used to detect tax fraud to be open to the public because then people can know how to fool yeah, the algorithm. Right. Um, but usually on things like uh, facial recognition or, you know, uh, assessing risk in, in a criminal justice context, uh, most of the, the ways that you would fool or, or game the algorithm would be like by reducing the level of risk, which mm-hmm. is kind of what you're mm-hmm. getting at. Um, and so when there's not the risk of gaming the system, uh, then, yeah, making it open and transparent to the public, uh, it can increase sort of public understanding about how these technologies work in the first place. Uh, you can have civil libertarian groups constantly be checking these, uh, pointing out where are the data sets uh, flawed and in what ways is the algorithm, you know, biased in one direction or the other. Um, and then that can hopefully end up getting you to better results. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk about some of the um, worst case scenarios here. Um, so what we don't want, and I think we'd all agree about this, is we don't want a, a what they called the snoopers charter over in the UK uh, a couple of years ago. It was called the Investigatory Powers Act, which basically gave British law enforcement warrantless access to any CCTV in the country. So not just ones that you know, were on government property, 
but any CCTV, you know, closed the television circuit at any business, the, the cops can just go and say, well, for interests of, of, you know, fighting crime and national security, you need to give us your, your closed, you know, circuit, right? You you don't want that. That kind of sweeping access is, I think, the kind of excessive um, use of, of you know, you, so here you can imagine if you go to Walmart, there's a camera as you go into the Walmart that takes your your, your image. Um, it's one thing for Walmart to use that for some purpose. And they actually, they did trial a facial recognition uh, system to prevent retail theft a few years ago, though they didn't didn't follow through with it. But um, it's one thing for them to have access to their own database of people who have opted in to going to Walmart. Mm-hmm. It's another thing for the government to be able to, without a warrant, say, we want to track where this person who will, will say we suspect is a terrorist. We want, we want access to how many times they went to Walmart and what things they bought there mm-hmm. and have access to all that information without a warrant process, without having to go to a judge. Yeah. Right. So uh, there is an extreme that we don't want to go to. But again, we have a system for trying to to prevent some of that abuse of power warrants. Right. Yeah. That that's a useful check in the United States. Um, And when you start talking about what are the really dystopian negative use cases of this uh, technology, it's usually in uh, countries and jurisdictions where there aren't the same sort of checks. Yeah. Um, You know, so you look at uh, some of the ways facial recognition technology has been deployed in China, um, some of the ways it's now being outsourced to countries like Venezuela. Uh, You get to some like really concerning like police state where constantly monitoring you, uh, not just for like, you know, did you steal that woman's purse and can we track you down? But like, are you a political dissident? Are you disagreeing? with our, you know, central one-party state. Uh, and now we can be constantly monitoring you uh, and trying to, you know, prevent you from organizing rallies and, and things like that. Uh, and, and I think, when, yeah, when you're dealing with jurisdictions where there's much less, uh, you know, you can already say that the United States doesn't have like a good track record on some of these civil liberty things, but uh, we're still relative to lots of other countries that are also uh, starting to experiment with this technology uh, much worse than us. This conversation reminds me of something uh my friend and former colleague adam bates would say adam uh used to do criminal justice here at cato uh and he's from oklahoma and he had this great phrase he said uh oklahoma is like what people think texas is like (laughs) and uh (laughs) and when it comes to national intelligence or surveillance i always say um no uh gchq is like what people think the nsa is like like the british have really <laughs> yeah. uh unfortunately i think really embraced a lot of this uh pervasive surveillance which is especially unfortunate for a country that really uh, housed george orwell for a big part of his life uh but though I, I should note they made an exception to, to the warrantless snooping bit in the snoopers charter uh which was that if you want to to spy on a member of uh of parliament you got to draw to the line somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you have to get the, the yeah. Speaker of the House of Commons and the Prime Minister to sign off on. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, I don't actually th- – so in the US, I think uh, something like that would be harder. Uh, as Caleb is yeah, – we're, we're certainly better than a lot of countries. I'm still not perfect, but trying to uh, – restrictions on that kind of uh, – what, what you see in Britain, I think uh, that would be much harder to do on, on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, the The – well, it's it's access to private cameras versus public cameras isn't actually that much reassurance because then the government just builds more cameras and yeah. just puts them out more. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, the U.S. courts have had to deal with with tracking, uh, warrantless tracking. They've done it a few times, but we're still actually we've been chipping away at this with with the Jones decision and Carpenter and all these other decisions, but we still haven't had uh, a question that I think comprehensively deals with the 
tracking of someone using at least right. well so carpenter dealt with cell phone tracking uh but it came to a very very narrow holding that is specific really just to that kind of technology uh it will it will prompt a lot of litigation i'm sure uh but it's a difficult question of well uh with facial recognition and drones you know this is a persistent aerial surveillance becoming much easier uh i mean forget uh, CCTV on the street, the the ability of one or two machines to keep a city under basically constant surveillance. Uh, we kind of have to ask the question: um, How much anonymity uh, should we enjoy? And the the difficult thing about that is, as we discussed earlier, that a lot of us can do things that are totally legal, but still perhaps societally suspect uh, because people don't have good memory. So when we're you can do things that are totally legal, but people think, eh, I don't know. So people who go to gun shows or strip clubs or abortion clinics, uh, who go to certain religious ceremonies, you know, all of that stuff is legal. But you might be less likely to do it if someone's going to take photos of your car and tracking license plates. Or uh, So the, the worry is not so much worrying about, well, what does this mean to uh, when it comes to violent crime and the stuff we can all agree is really bad. But yeah. the the cost of how many people will just decide, I would go to the protest, but I, eh, I just would rather not. Or, you know, I would actually like to go hunting, but I'd rather just not. Uh, and that's that's a difficult question to answer. It, that's more likely of a problem. Than, I mean, the the... I mean, I think you are absolutely right, Caleb, with the uh, uh, the specter of what China is doing with Uyghurs, tracking the the Uyghur people in um, in Western China, where there was someone who hacked a Chinese government database that had 2.5 million unique entries, so for different Uyghur, mostly Uyghur folk, uh, tracking precise with with I think it was tens of millions of data points coming in every every week. So the, to the best of their ability. 2.5 million people were being tracked everywhere they went outside of their house day after day after day. So building up a, you know, you can, they could identify, well, who, who went to this dissident meeting and what kinds of things were they doing? And so as a tool of political control, but that's, that's probably not going to happen here in the U S in the near future, but that doesn't mean there aren't applications that have the effect of stifling free exercise, free, you know, people's well, perception I, of freedom. I, that well, I, this is, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic, right? But yeah. we do know, so in the past, you know, that whole case, the the NAACP case was about, well, how much information can a government have about membership lists yeah. of yeah, yeah. Uh, groups that some governments don't like very much? Uh, and I think in the wake of um, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, there were widespread concerns about government access to social media sites and analysis of yeah. uh, protesters. Uh, but as we've mentioned, you know, the could be a lot lot worse i'd rather be living here than yeah, in western yeah, china yeah. uh it, the situation there is really really dire well, but uh, all you yeah. need is uh some kind of horrific incident or some kind of um, accident for a totally innocent population group to feel somewhat stifled it's like if you transplanted this technology and this capability into the hands of jagger hoover's fbi in the 50s during the mccarthy you know scare Ooh. <laughs> um like i mean there, there was congress passed the law the mccarran yeah. act to make membership and attendance at communist party meetings illegal Right uh, to the point of having your citizens, citizenship stripped and being deported to the Soviet Union, whether or not you were, you know, yeah. actually Russian. Now, bits of that years later were were knocked down by the Supreme Court. But if you, if Edgar Hoover had had this had this technology, you know, he would have used it because he was using every mean short of that that was you know technology capable at the time to compile lists, to track people uh, using informants, using uh, plainclothes detectives. Um, so 
I mean, it's not I mean, so the right conditions for some truly scary authoritarian uses of this technology are not that far in our past. They just didn't have the tech then. We have the tech now, or we will here very soon. The right conditions. Well, I mean, who knows that you're predicting the future, but it's not impossible to imagine because we know we have a history of that kind of inciting incident. Yeah. Yeah. While, while we're thinking about um, also other negative use cases, <laughs> there's a whole nother sort of uh, arena of possible harm unrelated to um, or maybe, maybe slightly connected to, but mostly unrelated to uh, sort of like government surveillance use, uh, which is sort of how does this technology interact with other technologies in ways that could enable, say, non-state actors to do a lot more harm? Oh, so you combine something like uh, open source facial recognition software with like commercially available drones, you put a gun on it, and now you have like you know, an automated assassination bot. Uh, and, and There's a Black Mirror episode about this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of speculation <laughs> about it. Um yeah, and I, I think you do get to some like kind of con- concerning things there, because yeah. um, basically, in, in the same way that you're reducing transaction costs, uh, you know, for for recognizing faces, uh, that also enables all sorts of uh, harm from far away in the in the physical space that wasn't possible pre facial recognition. Um, yeah, and not just uh, uh, shootings, but you can imagine some really creepy um, ex boyfriends who mm-hmm. want to oh, yeah. engage in yeah, stalking yeah. and and all that kind of stuff is a little creepy. Uh, but you don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, yeah, right? Yeah. And and these these are these are serious issues that I'm sure uh, lawmakers are going to have to to tackle. Uh, the the worry I think a lot about what well, at least Caleb and I do is to try and be be enthusiasts for new technologies while also trying to yeah. make sure that uh, the the risks are highlighted. Uh, because the last thing I want to come across is as a technophobe, right? right. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. and you and you have yeah. seen I I saw, oh. Wasn't a signal. Uh, she, uh, a, a reporter at uh, Vox who used to be at the Atlantic. Uh, she reported on religion and Uyghur stuff. She was here at uh, Cato, uh, a panel we had about the Uyghurs, uh, and she had a, a piece at, at Vox recently about how you know there are some applications of AI that are just we should there should just be a red line that we just don't go there. Uh, I don't think that's the right approach. Uh, I think the uh, we shouldn't try and put this stuff away. We should try and think of. A uh, way to make uh, regulations and laws that make the technology awesome, and make the uh, more frightening stuff uh, harder to implement. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, in the dirty little secret is that if if tech has a compelling use case, it you can't stop it. I mean, especially we don't live in a one world government, one world system. I mean, there were attempts in the uh, during the early modern era to prevent printing presses from being built in particular, you know, principates. And uh, that didn't work so well because it turns out the printing presses just print stuff that then gets smuggled in, right? You can't stop the tech. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question is not should we or should we not have this tech? It's coming. The question is what are we going to do about, you know, uh, uh, making sure it's used in the best possible uses and not used in in bad ways? And maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about some of the positive use cases just so we don't end on a, like, (laughs) really really down (laughs) note. So, I mean, there was some cool stuff. I mean, I mentioned earlier retail loss prevention. So uh, the overwhelming majority – my my partner worked in retail for a while. The overwhelming majority of of shoplifting is a handful – it's a very small percentage of of customers. It's not like – you know, 20% of all people who go into a store try to steal something. It's like, you know, a tenth of a percent of shoppers are inveterate shoplifters. So if you can identify that really marginal case, that person who's the kleptomaniac basically or has a practical eBay 
business on the side selling stuff they steal. If you can identify and stop them, you can stop a big chunk of, of that retail theft. Uh, there's a company called Face First, which uses like entrance camera data to recognize. So if you get caught stealing something, that company will take your picture in exchange for them not pressing charges. You, they will have them waive their right to their, their image. So they take your picture, let you off the hook with the cops. If you come in again and steal, I mean, so there's some, you can, you can adjust the threshold, how many times you have to get caught doing it, all that kind of thing. But the idea is then these inveterate thieves, as soon as they step in the store, the camera recognizes them and they, you know, all eyes are on them or they're, they're kicked out potentially. And they claim, you know, a third reduction in shoplifting for users. And you can imagine as the technology gets better, a world in which retail theft becomes, well, much less common than it currently is, which means stuff gets cheaper for people who are honest consumers, right? I mean, that's a real gain. I mean, your cost of living goes down because we were pre- preventing theft, retail theft. So like that's that's one very positive use case. I mean, I think we all would like to pay less for stuff and prevent thievery. <laughs> I think we're, we're anti-thievery in general, I suppose, here at Building Tomorrow. Um, some other, I mean, there's other use cases that are probably more about convenience, uh, like home security. I, I think even right now, the Google, is it the Google Nest IQ? Um, you can use it as a, a camera you put in your house. And if, it, if it's just your family members, it recognizes them. But if like a burglar broke in, it'll send an alert to you saying unrecognized person. I mean, so there's, you know, some marginal gain utility for home security, you can imagine a world in which you don't ever have to uh, – one of those what's, – what's the company with the doorbells that are have cameras in them? Um, the basic tech. I mean imagine if you want to get in your house and you don't need keys anymore. You just – you know, the doorbell scans your face and like, oh, yeah, you, you belong here. For sure. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a bunch of ways in which uh, we interact with the world and are kind of like slowed down or things are more expensive uh, because of the transaction costs of, you know, going to our car or going into our home or unlocking our phone or, you know, getting around on public transportation or any, any number of ways that you could like really make seamless, easy experiences. Um, and those sometimes seem like marginal gains, um, but they can have like pretty big like overall impacts. Um, I'm also curious about uh, – it's oftentimes difficult to predict what are going to be like new, like sea change, you know, mm-hmm, uses mm-hmm. of technology that are really impossible to predict until they come about. Uh, and I think there's potentially some interesting overlaps between like AR and VR mm-hmm. and facial recognition and kind of just like exploring the world around us in a different way. Um, again, it's it's hard to know exactly what those look like, but um, I think there's some promising applications. Another application, uh, actually, I think I think the thing I mentioned earlier with Amazon was actually just like install a lock and you can let oh. the Amazon guy in to drop oh, the thing. Yeah, yeah, so right. not facial recognition. <laughs> but anyway, you, I think uh, you but, could layer facial recognition onto that. You can thing. imagine a right, situation yeah. where that's pretty yeah. easy. Uh, one one that could be uh, valuable is uh, missing persons, not you know, mm. like people with dementia who yeah. go go walk about. Uh, if if a family member is happy to volunteer a photo to uh, an agency to do a search to find people who are lost, missing children, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff. It might just be because I just wrapped up the third season of True Detective. I remember thinking if they had facial recognition, <laughs> that would be a lot, a lot easier. Uh, that so that's uh, yeah. yeah. It, Law enforcement do more than just investigate violent crimes and um, bully protesters, right? Really, there's people go missing, and uh, that's that's a significant concern to to their family members and uh, a world in which someone could say, "Here's a photo of my my father who has dementia. 
that see if he's popped up anywhere. Yeah. That'd be a, that'd be really cool. You can also do some uh, interesting stuff trying to prevent like sex trafficking. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Thorn is is doing some really cool stuff here, where uh, you know, if again, if you have a picture of like the missing person, uh, you can like reverse search like a bunch of. Uh, you know, different uh, like why live uh, webcam situations where oftentimes mm. these victims are, and then you know reverse trace their IP and find you know the victim uh, and and help uh, recover them, uh, and so that those also seem like promising uses. Sure, there are some um, um, medical use cases as well where uh, you would. Um, it, it's kind of like with law enforcement, so we're, we're not talking a hundred percent sure. Uh, you know, intervals of confidence, 99%, 95%. But um, they've actually used facial recognition software to identify a, a lot of chromosomal uh, and genetic disorders, which will often manifest on the face, sometimes in ways that are um, more subtle than the human eye can detect, but that leave trace markers on like the bone structure of the face. And they've actually had the software outperform even expert doctors at predicting just based on a scan of the face, how likely someone is to have Williams syndrome or DeGeorge or even or even Downs. And so it's not something that like it's going to replace doctors, but be another kit in the toolbox that like you go into your primary care physician with your kid for their regular whatever year checkup it is. And they do a quick scan so that, you know, you know, there's an 80 percent chance that this kid has this chromosomal disorder that wouldn't have been detected otherwise unless they went to an expert which you're not going to do unless you have some sort of indication, but you're able to intervene that much earlier in the developmental response and improve life outcomes. I mean, so there's really, you know, um, and this is just the stuff that we can kind of maybe hint at right now. And I think your point, Caleb, that there's unknown knowns. I mean, there's stuff we just are known unknowns. There's stuff we <laughs> don't know how this will be applied. Um, and so we should, we should be open to the, to the, to the beneficial outcomes that if we just let this technology grow, um, that said, maybe we should talk about some. So what do we do here? The, the ACLU has called for a complete moratorium on law enforcement use of uh, facial recognition software until, well, they just kind of some un- indeterminate point. Um, what would be the first step? So like, Matthew, if you had to say, okay, the Baltimore Police Department, uh, they've considered using uh, uh, surveillance drones that circle the city taking a record of where everyone in the city is and they have, there's been proposals to trial this kind of software and they're layering facial recognition software on top of that. Like what should they do? I mean, so if not a complete moratorium, what right now should be done in terms of policy? Right. I suppose, uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing a paper on this, uh, but so spoiler alert. Uh, however, uh, that they could change, but sitting here now, I think there are a couple of necessary conditions I would like to see before, police implement uh, facial recognition technology. One is what we discussed earlier, which uh, the technology should be, the local government should be transparent with the public about what kind of technology is being used. Ideally, it should be open source so people can look at it and they should be uh, uh, open and transparent about the kind of thresholds they're using it for. Uh, I would also like to ensure that the databases are purged of everyone who isn't wanted for serious violent crime. Uh, And I would also... I think I'm I'm pretty sure I would like this not to be done real time uh, or uh, implemented with uh, body cameras, right, in real time. I think that this should primarily be an identification tool for people who have been arrested and should also be uh, used as part of investigations, that it shouldn't be a tool for people to, for cops just to identify people on the street. Uh, now, some people will object to that, but I think 
the reason I don't like the idea of real-time facial recognition is inevitably my other proposal of having only a, a database of people who are wanted for violent crimes will get expanded. And the situation that we saw in uh, Ferguson, the DOJ report highlighted how just the, the enforcement of warrants were really petty stuff just had horrific effect on police community interactions. And I think real-time facial recognition has the potential to make that sort of thing a lot worse. Um, so yeah, those are three or four yeah. uh, situation uh, policies I would ask for. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth uh, just taking a step back and, and recognizing that as, as pro-tech as we are and as much as we want to see, you know, building tomorrow, we, we want to get to that cool future that we all imagine. Um, and as much of a fan of permissionless innovation as I am, uh, that doesn't necessarily apply to the government. Like yeah. it's totally yeah. fine and appropriate to have lots of stringent checks uh, before we start letting the government uh, use te new technologies uh, because they don't have the same sort of feedback mechanisms, right? We talk a lot about the importance of the market discovery process and letting us get to better net outcomes. Uh, but part of the reason that we trust that is because there are profit and loss signals. Consumers can opt in and out of various regimes and the ones that people don't like are going to end up eventually uh, – you know, being forced out of the market. Um, but there's not the same check on government behavior. You know, they can continue doing something indefinitely, uh, no matter, you know, how much people object to it or, or the negative societal incomes that it has. And sort of the, the political correction process is much less uh, attuned to customer feedback and is much slower in some ways than, than market feedback is. Um, and yeah. so I, I think it's totally fine to take a cautious, uh, in, in some ways, make sure we have the preconditions there for uh productive use and not unproductive use, um, you know, before we let them run wild with the use of this tech. I think to your point about uh, the ways in which the market is more responsive to uh, concerns about the misuse of this technology, even by the private sector, uh, there was a company at TechCrunch Disrupt last year called DID, which was an Israeli company um, that was, uh, their, their model is they will slightly distort an image so that the facial recognition software can't identify it like it's it's distorted so slightly that the human eye can't detect the difference but it messes with the alg with the algorithm of the facial recognition software um and they're the, but their their use case is that platforms so let's say uh facebook finds out that people are really creeped out by their use of facial recognition software uh and a lot more and more consumers are i mean this is something i would expect as consumers become educated about they'll become a little bit more wary or at least some segment of them about even big companies storing this this data um, and how they use it and you know, how they sell it, whether they work with the government about it, et cetera, right? Um, and so they would go to DID and be like, hey, I've got all these images that my users upload for their Facebook photos or for the Dropbox or whatever. Could you distort them so that I can reassure my our customers that even if we wanted to, we couldn't use this as part of a useful facial recognition database? Right. So like there are already, you know, market mechanisms creating, you know, a, a, a kind of a technological pushback against the use of facial recognition software. Yeah. That's the, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, we're going to continue to see there be, you know, whenever new technologies come out that try to break down transaction costs or barriers, uh, there's going to be technologies that come and try to, yeah. you know, put them back in. And so there's yeah. going to be in some ways like, you know, a back and forth arms race as, as technology continues to evolve and adapt. And that's fine. Um, the other thing I would note is that, 
in, in some ways, we want there to be a little bit of space for the public to have evolving norms around privacy. I think sometimes we take, uh, you know, pre-existing norms as a given that this is always what should happen and that what consumers express now about the relevant trade-offs between privacy and new technology and convenience are always going to be the trade-offs that they're going to want to make in the future. There's a... Um, a story Adam Thier from Mercatus always likes to tell about sort of the adaptation of the camera in society uh, and that, you know, it used to be you had a reasonable expectation of privacy about what your face looked like. You know, you could go to the next town over and if nobody had met you there, you wouldn't expect anyone to be able to see you uh, or, or recognize you uh, based on the fact that they hadn't met you yet. Um, and then you could maybe sit, you know, in front of a sketch artist for several hours and they could take a detailed, uh, you know, sketch yeah. of your face and then, you know, you can make copies of that or something. But unless you were willing to do that, it was very hard to replicate what someone's face looked like. Uh, and then suddenly with the invention of a camera, you could take a snap and take a picture of someone in some ways, oftentimes without their consent. And then now you have a picture of them that you could replicate and post all over. Uh, and, you know, there were a lot of famous court cases where uh, Supreme Court justices were kind of freaking out about the privacy implications of this. And some people were recommending we need to preemptively, you know, clamp down on the camera where we're concerned <laughs> about the the interactions of this on society. Uh, and consumers basically decided uh, this is a really cool tech. I want one, too. Uh, and people's kind of norms about what was the reasonable expectation yeah. of privacy uh, slowly began to change. there And, and there, there was still pushback. Obviously, if someone tried to bring out a camera in a bathroom, they're going to be shamed if there's other people around. They're going to say, hey, what are you doing? Put that away. Right, right. Um, and so obviously, you know, we don't want to rely on that as maybe our only mechanism for, for shaping the future of, uh, you know, facial recognition technology. But that is one thing to kind of be aware of. We want there to be some space for, for cultural norms to kind of evolve and adapt over time. I think on that note, we'll close up for today. But Caleb, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, to our listeners, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.